Today, I'm talking to my colleague, Deb Jones. Deb is a fantastic trainer, dog sports competitor, and author. And Deb has lived a lot as well. So in this episode, we're going to talk about both. Dogs and life, the heavy parts of life, the ones we don't see coming, or maybe we do see them coming, but there's nothing we can do about them. But before we dive in, Deb, let me make space for you to introduce yourself. Share a bit about yourself, your pronouns, the dogs in your life, and your latest books. Okay, thank you, Chrissy. I am really excited to be here and talk to you about this topic. So for those that don't know me out there, my name is Deb Jones. I have a um, PhD in social and behavioral psychology. I studied behavior for nine years of higher education, and I then taught um, college full-time for about 20 years, and I taught a variety of psychology courses, but learning and behavior was always my specialty, and about the same time that I was in graduate school, I started training dogs, um, and of course, what I knew from the scientific aspects of it and what I saw in the dog training world didn't actually match very well, which led me to really want to apply positive reinforcement-based training to all different areas of dog training. And so I've had a lot of different dogs over the years. I've had um, retrievers, Labradorian golden retrievers. I've had Papillons, which I'm hoping to go back to for my next dog as um, they're lovely little dogs. Very bright, very fun. I've had Shelties, a whole bunch of Shelties, <laughs> and two Border Collies. And now I have an Australian Cooley as well. Um, and people ask me to describe what that is. And I say it's like a feral border collie. So <laughs> it's sort of like, but he's very sweet. So right now we live with two Shelties, Tigger and Pixel, who are about five and seven-ish. And um, my border collie star, who is 12. And also then my coolie wizard, who is two. So those are the current dogs. And four down from at one point, we had eight. So we've had lots of different dogs and, and lots of variety over the years. I've done everything from competition obedience through rally to um, agility. And it, there was a point in my life when I was doing an agility trial about three out of four weekends a month. So it was definitely an agility addict for a while there. We had multiple dogs in it. I've been training with Judy Keller for about 20 years, we developed a lot of our training techniques together, including the focus work that we were first fairly well known for, I think. And she is still my roommate now. So we've known each other a long time and we train together all the time and we teach together all the time as well. Let's see, what else can I tell you? So I retired from full-time teaching about five years ago and I wasn't sure you know, what was going to happen or how it was going to work. But I had started teaching at Benzie Dog Sports Academy about 10 years ago, almost as long as it's been there. I wasn't sure how that was going to work either. The, the whole idea of online teaching 10 years ago was um, a little uncertain. It wasn't commonly done, but I was very drawn to it and have enjoyed it greatly and have really loved doing classes and webinars and workshops at FDSA now. So I've enjoyed that a lot. And of course, I think the thing that brings us to our talk today is over the course of all those years, I've had a lot of dogs. I've had dogs die from a variety of reasons over those years. There's just no question that it's going to happen. Um, so I've had dogs die just 
because they're old. I've had them die from accidents and different diseases. Usually they live till about 15 and, and I consider that a pretty decent long dog life. But one of the events that happened that really clarified for me how powerful grief can be and how difficult it is, was one of my dogs, a border collie that I had about seven years ago now, six, seven years ago, Hilo killed one of our Shelties. And it was a horrible, and I won't say totally unexpected, but maybe 90% unexpected thing. It's never totally unexpected. The bad things happen when you have a lot of dogs together. Anybody who tells you that it is, is, is wrong. <laughs> when you have a lot of dogs, things can occur that you can't control or that you didn't see coming. And this was the case here. So Hilo killed Quest. Quest was a shelter about 10 years old. And Hilo was about going on to be three at the time that this happened. I had stepped outside. Um, I was leaf blowing the patio and not paying any attention to what was going on in the house. I'd done it a million times. I came in and Quest was still alive, but barely. And it was a terrible, terrible situation. We rushed Quest to the emergency vet, but they could not save him. And then the next day I had Hilo euthanized. And that started a firestorm of horrible things that at the point at that time I didn't think anything good could ever come out of that kind of tragedy for my profession as a dog trainer I kind of thought at that moment that my career was over I thought nobody is going to want to learn from me after this has happened I lost a lot of personal relationships because people felt what I did was wrong and that there was really no excuse for euthanizing him and that I had other options. And so there was a lot of second guessing um, by a lot of people, people who knew me and people who did not know me. And I felt pretty much vilified by a large part of the dog training community. But on the other hand, there was a large part that was also very supportive and understanding. So this is a long way, I guess, of introducing all this and getting to the point of saying that that's a big part of why I wrote this latest book. This is my 13th book that I've written on dog training. And so this is the reason I wanted to write a book on grief. We haven't set the title yet, I think, called When the Loss is Deep, a Companion Animal Grief Journal. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was just to me, to my mind, when I started writing this, it's like, it's just a small little book. It's not an advice book necessarily. It's not how to, how to do grief, because I don't think anybody can tell you how to do grief. It, it is definitely something that you have to navigate on your own to a great extent. But what I wanted was for a way for the person who's using the book rather than reading it, for the person to be actively working through some of the major issues that seem to come along with all sorts of grief. Because I've had a, a fair amount of loss in my life, including my son dying 10 years ago, I felt like this is something I know a lot about. Yeah. And this, this is a topic that it's hard for people to talk about. And it's really hard, even if you're trying to support somebody else, it's really hard to know what to do or what to say. And we sometimes feel like we make things worse rather than better. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just to kind of explore these ideas that grief is an active process. Grieving is an active process. And there are ways to make it easier to live with 
and I don't think there's any way to ever really get over it or get through it, but there are ways that you can survive and keep living and move through it. And so that's why I wrote the book. Like I say, it's more of a journal and it doesn't do you much good to read if you don't work through the prompts. Yeah. The, yeah so, and I know I sent you a copy of it yeah. um, earlier that, yeah, you, if you're somebody who likes to write and if you're somebody who is a little introspective and likes to think through things, which is the person I am, obviously, then I think this will resonate with people. I think that this activity of sitting down and actually working through these prompts, there are, I think I ended up with 14 prompts. 14, 15. <laughs> yeah, 14 prompts. And each one has like five or six questions that are fairly open-ended. There's no right or wrong, but it's things to think about on these different topics. And sometimes by doing this, it can help you to give you some clarity, to feel maybe slightly better as you're going through the process. That's the book and that's why I wrote it. And I know that's kind of what we wanted to get into was talk to talking about was this whole process of grief. And I actually lost one of my dogs, Zen, about a year ago. And I think Zen was like the final catalyst for writing the book. You know, lots of dogs have died, but Zen was incredibly special to me. He was 14-ish, but he was one of those dogs that just changes your life. And so everything about life with Zen was very different than life without Zen. Yeah. Life without Zen has been hard. And so I think that's finally what got me to just like sit down and write the book. And to me, it was very cathartic and I felt much better when I was done with it. And I'm like, well, you know, I want to share it with people if that's something they want or need. So I decided to just, you know, self-publish it on Amazon and keep it as cheap as I possibly could so that people would be able to use it or to be able to give it to somebody that you want to support. And when you don't know what to say to somebody, I think it's a valid thing to give them this book and say, you know, at some point you might want to look through it and you might be ready to write about it. And if not, no big deal, but there you go. They have the resource then. So. Yeah. I'm really grateful. Thank you for sending me a copy. Oh, you're It came at the right time for me. Because I don't think I've been ready to work through my loss, which was also a behavioral euthanasia loss of grit, my Malinois. Yeah. And it's been about three years. I've kind of avoided it. I have not talked about it publicly because, so this is the first time I talk about it in a more public space. And the reason I have not talked about it publicly is because you did. <laughs> and I saw what happened. Yeah. I was definitely not ready for that shitstorm to hit me in that moment. Yeah. So I decided not to talk about it. But at the same time, I think it is so important to talk about these things. Now I have a little distance and I can talk about it. Your book really helped me. Like I worked through the prompts. I really like, for example, in the beginning, I think you say that if one of the prompts does not resonate with you, just skip it. And like I did that a few times. And it's like, you gave me permission to do that because otherwise I'm like, no, I want to do like, I need to do all the things and all these ways. You gave me permission to use the book in the way that made the most sense for me. And that was really helpful. Oh, good. Also, can I read something to you that is in the very end, but I feel like that is so, sure. that's so deeply resonated with me. It's the last paragraph before you start the, about the author section. Oh, Okay. Where you say, I want to leave you with hope. Hope that your future can be better than your present. 
We've been very lucky to share our lives with amazing creatures. Creatures that we have loved enough to deeply grieve when they are gone. There's really no better testament to the importance of our relationship than the pain when it ends. And there's no better way to honor our loved ones than to take the time to thoughtfully mourn their loss. <laughs> I can't believe I'm even tearing up and I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's uh, that whole idea that you can't have love without pain at some point. If you lose somebody you love, whether it's human or animal, the pain is definitely going to be there. And we can't avoid it sometimes. And trying to avoid it often makes things worse. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, when we try to pretend it's not happening or fill ourselves, keep ourselves busy enough with other activities that we don't process it and think about it. And to me, I think when my son died, I was like, you know, trying to work two full-time jobs because it kept me busy. Yeah. And then I didn't have to deal with it and think about it and go through it. And I think a lot of people do that. A lot of us, you know, try to avoid the pain for as long as we can. But I've also been through it enough to realize that there's something beyond it and that it's not always going to feel horrible forever. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it does seem like that in the beginning. I mean, you know, it, it yeah. seems so horrible. And since you and I are talking a lot about behavioral euthanasia, let me say first for anybody who's not really clear on what, maybe we should clarify what that means. Yeah. When you have an animal who has some behaviors that tend to be dangerous enough or uncomfortable enough to others, you know, danger themselves as well as to others or behaviors that are that are so overwhelmingly uncomfortable and there's no way to deal with them or manage them um, yeah. that you end up choosing euthanasia as what you consider the best option for that animal in terms of the fact that their quality of life and their well-being and the safety of those around them is at risk. So there's a lot that might go into that choice. And I know there are people out there who think that is never a valid option. I've heard from those people, as you, as you know, yeah. I've heard from those people that, you know, it's never the right choice, but clearly I don't believe that to be true, or I would not have made the decision I made because I didn't make the choice to euthanize my dog because I hated him or didn't love him. Just the opposite. I made that choice because it was the only choice for him as well as for everybody around him because he would have no quality of life after what had happened yeah management just wouldn't management as they say management management always fails right there will be that day and, yeah and once you know that you have a dangerous animal then it's your responsibility to make sure nobody else ever gets hurt you know, and, and in my case, because the dog that eventually died ended up going to the emergency vet, now it, it was on record in the county I lived in that I had the dangerous dog in my household. And then there, be, there in my county are a bunch of rules that I would have to follow for the rest of his life if I kept him, which included, you know, never being loose off leash outdoors ever. This is a dog that I used to take hiking, you yeah. know, almost daily for his entire life where, you know, being muzzled at all times when he's out in public and, and my liability also for him then would be huge. If anything ever happened, I would be financially liable as well as legally liable for his and, and ethically and morally, I couldn't ever take chances that another dog would get hurt. But 
a lot of people don't believe that any of that is really like a valid reason for these choices. So, but somewhere along the way in my life, I have discovered, <laughs> discovered like it's a new thing. I have finally, I guess, accepted the fact that it doesn't matter what other people think about what I do, yeah. that they don't have any say unless they were directly involved. They don't have any right to question my choice on behavioral euthanasia. Yeah. Because they don't know. Everybody can try to tell you what you should have done after the fact. Yeah. And they've never met you. They've never met your dog. Right. I mean, yeah. 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 They have no idea. And I think part of what I encountered had to do with the fact that I'm a little bit well known in the dog training world. And there are people who. You know, they see somebody that they feel like they can pull them down somehow, like, you know, I'm not as good as I think I am, or, you know, I'm not really sure of the reasoning behind it. And the fact is that some of the people who were loudest and most unpleasant about it were people that I had actually met or knew in real life. But mostly our training styles didn't mesh up. And I moved off in a different direction in my training and went into to much more positive reinforcement-based training. And so they wanted to blame that for the reason I had to euthanize my dog because uh -huh. I'm too positive, <laughs> which uh, I think is just the opposite. <laughs> you know, I don't think positive training is going to lead to a dog that needs to be euthanized. No. Um, you know, <laughs> I think poor management might. I think um, harsh punishment, unpredictability, you know, lack of clarity, lots of things might lead a dog to become aggressive or more aggressive or more reactive. I definitely don't think that any of my approaches to training um, no. would have led in that direction, just the opposite. But I think it's a good excuse for a certain subgroup of trainers to yes. say, see, if she would have just been harder with her dogs, if she just would have used punishment, she never would have had this problem. So I think it became something more than just my situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Like also, there are also genetics at play. And it's not like you insert those genetics into the dog. There are dogs, they will never get aggressive because they just don't have that in them. Exactly. And then exactly. there are dogs that do have that in them. We don't have any influence on that. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to accept. I came from a school of um, kind of radical behaviorism when I was first um, learning about behavioral psychology, that the idea that the environment and experiences could change an individual a lot. And more and more over my lifetime, I've kind of drifted back to, you know what? It can't overcome nature. Nature is what it is. The genetics that we have for all of us are strong determinants of ultimate behavior. We can maybe move the needle a little bit one direction yeah. or the other, but we can't change the raw material completely. That took me a while to believe as a psychologist, um, but I can see now very clearly how that radical belief that what I do determines the outcome isn't the case at all. In fact, just the opposite. Sometimes no matter what I do, I can't change the outcome. Yeah. And nobody likes to believe that. And I think that's something we kind of get into with people who haven't had it happen to them. Yeah. They're pretty sure something they do could have changed the outcome. 
they think the puppy is a blank slate right and everything that happens after is because you're amazing or because you're bad <laughs> but puppies are not blank slates exactly and I used to believe that too I don't anymore yeah. Yeah. because we know now and I think we didn't used to know that in the past but um we know now that even the in utero environment for example has an influence on who that dog will become exactly As someone who gets a puppy, you are not determining the in utero environment that this puppy experiences. You have zero influence. Right. And we we can't control everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think we want to, especially as professional dog trainers. Of course. That's why we are dog trainers. Right. Because we like controlling things. <laughs> Webinars by Jessica Heckman have helped me understand oh, yeah. how much goes into who a dog becomes. And of course, the environment is a component and especially the early weeks of life. But like, that's just one slice of the entire pie. Right. The way I see it now or the way I picture it or explain it to people is you have this genetic frame, basically. Before the puppy is born, there's already a frame that is being set, right? And within mm -hmm. that frame, the puppy or the dog can move in either direction, depending on the environment they grow up in, depending on like whether I think that's true, whether it's a human or a dog or any other animal. Right. Yes. Depending on your, for example, depending on your social circumstances as a human, whether you yeah. reach your full potential or not depends on the environment you grow up in and on your circumstances. But the potential that you're able to reach under the best of circumstances is still genetically determined. And the potential you will fall down to under the worst of circumstances is also genetically determined or like predetermined in that sense. Yes, definitely. And you can have horrible circumstances happen to you and still be okay. Or you can have everything work out perfectly and not be okay. Right. Yeah. And that's hard. I think that's hard for people to accept. I think it is really hard for us just as human beings to accept that we can't control the outcome when we want to so much, when we want our dogs to have good lives and we want them to excel at what they do and we want them to be happy and we can't necessarily control that. And I think that that is something that really bothers us as human beings and we wish it wasn't true. Um, yeah. But I would say, yeah, Jessica Jessica Heckman is, is really brilliant and she yeah. has a lot of great work on genetics that I'm, I'm constantly amazed by how smart she is. So, so she's definitely somebody to learn from when it comes to those kinds of issues. And as I say, I came from an educational background of like John Watson, who said, you know, give me a baby and I'll make him anything I want him to be. It's like, oh, that's nonsense. <laughs> But back in the 1940s, that's what they actually truly believed. But we know it, that's not true now. Yeah. We've moved beyond that belief into understanding the interactions and that genetics does provide that framework. I think that's a really good, a really good way to put it. It's not like we have no influence over who our dogs become. Of course we do, but they are not blank slates. Right. They never were. The day we met them, they were not a blank slate. Right. And yeah, that's again, hard sometimes to accept because, yeah. you know, and we do, I think you probably are the same as I do. You want to choose thoughtfully when you choose a puppy, you want to choose one that you think has the best chance to fit into your lifestyle and be successful and be all the things I hope they will be. And I can tell you over and over again that it doesn't work out that way. <laughs> we don't get what we want. We get the dog that they are. Yes. And sometimes that's very different from the dog that I hoped I was getting. Exactly. Also, like we do not get the dog 
quote unquote, we need. I hate when people say that. Uh, yeah. We just get the dog we get. <laughs> yeah. This idea that somehow there's, yeah. Some ulterior purpose. I mean, mm. come on. Like, no. I think it's a way to make meaning out of something or to try to make it make sense to you. But in reality, yeah, we get the dog we get. Every dog I get has challenges that I didn't expect and didn't want. <laughs> you know, I would prefer the dog with no challenges in training and behavior, and, but I've not gotten that dog yet, at least not completely. Yeah. I came pretty close with Zen, but I have not gotten that perfect dog. And I don't know that anybody really does. Every dog comes with challenges. Yeah. It's easy to, when you look back, think they were perfect, but they were not. Because <laughs> Zen was not perfect, but now I claim he is after he's gone. Of course. And you get that. You get to do that. Yeah. I think every dog we get will teach us something. Of course. Just like every person we meet is going to teach us something. Right. But we could have learned these things in other ways too. <laughs> it's not like we needed the dog that we had to behaviorally euthanize to learn a certain lesson. I don't think that's true. No, I think what comes from that is I have a lot more empathy for people who have dogs with behavioral issues that they don't know how to solve yeah. or that they feel completely overwhelmed with. And maybe I didn't have as much empathy before, but I don't think Hilo needed to die for me to learn that lesson. Exactly. I, you know, I wish that that hadn't happened. I wish I had never learned that lesson, yeah. it, but I've got to take it now that I have it. Yeah. And you could also have learned it in other ways. Right. Right. I could have learned to be empathetic in a number of other ways or more empathetic yeah. than I was rather than through that pain and through that un discomfort and through, you know, everything that came with it. But again, we don't get a choice in the lessons that we get in life. We, we have to take them and learn from them. And apparently one of mine has been, you know, how to deal with grief because I keep getting that lesson over and over again. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know life. Come on. You have gotten more than enough lessons on grief. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like they say that you keep getting the same lesson until you figure it out or learn something from it. I'm like, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> what else is there? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of tapped out on learning my lessons on grief now. You're ready for that perfect dog. I am so ready. <laughs> and I have a feeling the next one's not going to be any more perfect than any of these are. Of course not. They're all challenging in their own ways. Also meet my foster puppy who decided they wanted to come up on my lap. Oh my gosh. So cute. Yeah. So foster for sure, not staying. I'm pretty sure it's not the right time for me to add another largish dog to my life. No. Otherwise I would keep her. But yeah. Yeah. Though is it ever the right time? I don't think I've ever really thought it was the perfect time. I don't know. We'll see. I don't think I will, but you never know. Yeah, exactly. I know what you mean. Sometimes it just happens. <laughs> she is, I mean, like she is a good example of, because she's really the opposite. She is maybe a little over four months old now. Right. And the previous owner, the person who purchased her, got her at eight weeks old. And I think two days later or something like that, their mom died. And oh. they just couldn't they couldn't deal with a puppy, right? That was an unexpected death. Mm. What ended up happening is for a month and a half, 
the puppy was just in the house and in the patio and they they just didn't have it like and I totally understand that they just didn't have it in them to do anything and looking at the puppy made them remember their mom in a way that they just had to walk away every time and after one and a half months of that they realized it wasn't going to change and they wanted the puppy to have the best chances in life and realized like this is the socialization period the puppy should be having experiences out and about so that's how I ended up with her and I didn't know what I was getting into I was like well we'll see you know <laughs> yeah it's and, every time yeah and I mean like so this puppy from eight weeks of age to three and a half months did not leave the house the progress that she has made has been linear she is yeah. now confident around people and dogs. She's waggy. She plays. She like hears all the noises. This is Mexico City. Uh-huh. That is crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It sounds like you got to her in time before you'd have to do a lot of rehabilitation. That is not what I would expect, especially right. from a sensitive breed. That's border collie. Right. Exactly. They can be so weird on the best end. Of unknown origin. Like, I don't know yeah. where exactly this person got that dog and what that breeder did. Probably not puppy culture. <laughs> exactly. And yet, you know. And yeah, it's uh, exactly. Sometimes the, yeah, you get dogs that just, you know, turn out better than we could have hoped. And other times they turn out much worse than we could have hoped. And yeah, we don't yeah. know why. And this is not me. Like, this is clearly not me. This is the puppy. <laughs> well, it is you to to a little bit of an extent. Like to a little bit. Yeah. But um, but honestly, um, yeah. every day she leaves me with my mouth open, really. Yeah. Yeah. Or my jaw drop. What do you say in English? Jaw drop. Yeah. Yeah. A jaw dropped or mouth open. That's that yeah. both works. <laughs> Those both work. Yeah. Uh, that's well that's good it's nice to have yeah but then that puppy I know takes up all your time and energy there for a while it's a pretty overwhelming amount of work goes into that every time I think about another puppy (laughs) I think that's a lot of work I always say it's going to be the last one Um, (laughs) I'm not sure I keep saying the next one will be the last one I like that attitude. Yeah. The next one might be, probably be the last one. We'll see how that goes. How old is Wizard now? Wizard is only two. And he lost a ton of time early on in life because I had him three months. He was, a, you know, I got him at a 10 weeks, something like that. I had him three months and then I got sick. Yeah. I ended up in the hospital. Yeah. Um, I ended up yeah, really struggling with being type one diabetic for you know, months and months and months of, of, you know, no energy, not going anywhere. So he lost a ton of time just all the way around. I feel like, you know, I really missed the most of the first year by the time I started to feel like myself again. Yeah. You know, I had so much time and energy into my recovery. And by the time I started to feel like myself and want to do anything with him again, he was already over a year old. Um, So I feel like now he's finally starting to catch up and he's starting to catch up. And, you know, same thing. We, he missed a lot of socialization. He's has some reactivity to dogs that I work on, not as much as I should. <laughs> I kind of work on it when, you know, on and off here and there and, and it gets better. But then I quit working on it for a while and it gets worse again. It's like amazing how that happens. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but no, I'm in no position to think about another dog, but I do think about other dogs <laughs> anyway. Don't we always? Yeah, think about the next. Yeah. But I have lots to do with him yet. So, you know, yeah. 
nothing else that I need to worry about right now in terms of dogs. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. To get back to our topic. Yeah, what were we talking about? We were just saying, oh yeah, the lessons. We take the lessons that we're being given, but we often would have liked to learn them in different ways. Uh, yeah, much easier way. And that's the case for life in general, right? right? Yeah, I think that's really true. It's like this whole idea that, you know, these are lessons that are important for me to learn. It's just like, ugh. I don't I don't really know about that. I think we all have a lot to learn in life and yeah. we may or may not get the chance to learn it. I, I some days I feel pretty lucky that, you know, I've gotten to be the age that I am and I've had all the experiences I've had because yeah. a lot of people will never get those things. Um, and so even the even the things that when they happen to me, I'm like, oh, this is the worst thing that ever happens. And I don't know if I'm going to survive yeah. this. And I don't know how anybody survives these things. You know, now with perspective and time, I can look back on them and say, okay, they weren't all completely awful. Yeah. <laughs> there were still some good things, but I don't know if that's a lesson that, you know, I'd go out of my way to learn, <laughs> but I've had to learn it. So, you know, there you go. And you've had to learn it in particularly difficult ways too. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Maybe more than most. Yeah. Um, but then other everybody has their challenges. Yeah. And this this is for sure what I've learned in life is that everybody has challenges. Lots of people, we never realize how serious their challenges in life are. Um, we never know. I happen to be pretty, in my little part of the world anyway, be pretty open and vocal about the things that I'm going through and the things that I've dealt with in life because it helps me. So number one, it's pretty selfish. It helps me to talk about stuff. It helps me to be open about it. When we euthanized Hilo, I wasn't going to talk about it publicly. I was absolutely never going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that two of our dogs were suddenly gone was not was also not something I could hide. Right. And the fact that both of these dogs had been a little bit public in terms of in a lot of my training videos, you know, at seminars, I had trialed with them. Um, you know, I would take them when I would work and do conferences. And so, you know, I, I knew I couldn't necessarily hide it. And I don't have it in me to be good at lying, at least not, at least not for that would be like a huge long term lie that I would have to keep up for the rest of my life about what happened. So I felt like, well, I just, you know, I didn't want to talk about it. Um, and then of course, I had a, a people who were asking, and then there are certain people I did want to tell. And it just finally became such an overwhelming mess. And this was within just a couple days time mm -hmm. that I, I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna give the whole story. And then that'll be the end of it. And that was not true at all. You know, I told the whole story and then things all went all different directions. I had people coming at me from all different directions. I had people going after seminars that I had scheduled. I had people who would contact the seminar hosts and tell them that they should fire me, that they should not host me because I was a terrible human being and I killed dogs. It was very personal and it was very ugly and it went on for a while. 
Um, and so I can understand why people wouldn't want to talk about it and they wouldn't want to say anything publicly. But once it was out there, it was out there. I couldn't take it back. The people who mattered to me understood and knew me. And I think that that was part of it that really bothered me. It's like, if you know me at all, you would know that I would never take something like this lightly, that taking the life of a dog would not be something I would ever choose to do if I felt like there were any other options that were left. I think certain people chose not to believe that. They just wanted to believe the worst of me. They wanted to make me the bad guy in this. And I have to say that Hilo's breeder was right there, you know, kind of at the forefront of that. I never for one second suggested that her breeding and her dogs could have led to any of this at all. And in fact, she's also Zen's breeder and Zen was my most perfect dog ever. So I, you yeah, know, you are someone who researches breeders well and, right, you know where and the you're dogs, your are, dogs, from. dogs are wonderful. I'd still say that to this day, she breeds fabulous dogs. So of course, then from her perspective, it had to be me. It had to be my fault because it couldn't be her fault. And it did turn out, you know, a couple of things. Hilo was a singleton mm. and he did not get any, any socialization as a puppy at all yeah. until he came to me. I mean, you know, he was with adult, we was with her adult dogs, but there was no litter. And I didn't think that much about it at the time. Now I would think very, very carefully about it. Me too. I see. I've learned that lesson through you. I don't have to go through it myself. <laughs> no, you don't want to go through it. I'm not taking a single puppy. You know, somebody's going to turn around and say, well, I had a dog that was a singleton and they turned out to be wonderful. Of course. And I believe that too. Yeah. Of course. Because yeah. you get all over the spectrum, but I wouldn't take the chance again. I wouldn't take it either. Yeah. Because once you've been through a behavioral euthanasia, you're really very, very gun shy about anything that might lead you back down that path. I don't think ahead of time I could ever have predicted what would happen and I couldn't have avoided it. People would like to think they could. And I know a lot of people go back through their past with their dog and try to find all the places they should have done something differently. And you'll always find places where you could have made different choices. But does that mean that the outcome would have been any different? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it would have been worse. Maybe it would have been better. Uh, maybe it would have taken longer or less yeah. time. I don't know. You know, that's that's impossible to say, but I know a lot of people do that. They kind of um, pick back through all the events in the past yeah. to try to see where did I make mistakes? Where did I miss something or did I not see something? And I'll do, I can do that and I can make myself feel really badly about the fact that I didn't change the events back before it happened, but I can't change it. So that doesn't really seem to be a real helpful way to move on with life to, um, you know, consistently try to go back over it again and again. Other people found it very easy to do that for me. Oh, yeah. They wanted to tell me all the things I did wrong and, and all the things I could have done differently and all the choices I should have made that I did not make. But again, not helpful, not solving any problems at that point in time, yeah. you know, so... I think there comes with behavioral euthanasia, as I'm sure you now know as well, this extra layer of guilt that we couldn't do it. We didn't do anything differently. Things turned out badly. You know, maybe, maybe there was a way that I could have avoided this. Maybe there was another option that I didn't think of that I could have taken. I often hear people say, well, I don't know that I did everything. And I'm like, you know, you can't, there's no everything. Yeah, you do everything reasonable. Right. 
everything reasonable. And what that means, that depends on the person. There is no objective answer for that. Right. I think it depends on every situation as to what's reasonable. What one person can live with, with their dogs, maybe I can't. Or the opposite, you know, there are things that, you know, that I, I feel like I can't live with with dogs. And one of the things I cannot live with is permanent separation of one dog from the rest. And yeah. so maybe somebody else thinks they could live with that. Well, good luck, <laughs> you know, because I don't see it ever being a happy situation for everybody. Yeah, that's the situation I wasn't with grit. Mm. Thinking back, I do have an element of guilt, but it has to do with something completely different, interestingly. I feel like I could see it coming. I just didn't want it to be true. Yes. When Grit was a puppy, she would overpower adult dogs. Uh. There were two males that a colleague of mine had who could put her in their place. When she was going too far and everyone else, adult confident dogs would just run away or roll on their back. Oh, so I was trying to, of course, orchestrate interactions with those two dogs I had access to who could actually set limits, right? And with my own dogs, she was fine because she grew up with them until she wasn't. And she wasn't even a year old when she tried to kill my standard poodle, Phoebe. Mm. So then crate and rotate it was from then onwards. And at that point, I believed, because that's what I wanted to believe, it was because their personalities just didn't match. And it was just Phoebe. When I split up with my ex, my ex kept Phoebe and I kept Grip and I thought, okay, problem solved. Problem. Yeah. 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 Which is, yeah. is a reasonable hope. Yeah. You know, if you want that to be the case, that would be a good solution. And then it started happening with my younger female Malinois game. Mm -hmm. She would start trying to kill game. Once you have seen that, that look. Uh -huh. In that dog's eyes, you know, this is not like any other dog fight. It's not, oh, I'm over aroused. It was cold blooded. She would see that dog and I could see in her eyes, or that's what it feels like to me. Mm -hmm. I can see you. You are a problem. I am going to solve that problem. Right. Yes. It was a very, very different from any other dog that I have seen yeah. show aggressive or reactive behavior. It was not fear-based. It was, I'm going to solve you. You're a problem. Yeah. It's, it's really scary. It is really scary. And it was completely quiet. There was no barking on right. Brit's side right. and she went mm -hmm. right for their necks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. What we found, what I found as well with, with Hilo. And again, I, being a dog trainer, right, I'm working and working and reintroducing them slowly, slowly. And I did that three times, spending all my time on working with protective contact, mm -hmm. voluntary sharing, look at that, having them together with grit in a muzzle and on a long line and game off leash. And three times I got back to the point where they were coexisting peacefully. And then again, something flipped. And we were back at, yeah, I'm going to try. And she was always muzzled mm -hmm. at that point because I just wanted to be sure that even if she got, like when she was off leash with game after my protocols. And then that one time that switch flipped and she managed to get rid of her muzzle. So she hurt game. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm lucky that I was right there and I could choke her off. And this dog, yeah. like I love this dog. Like this was my once in a lifetime dog. That was great. That's I love this dog so much because training 
with her was amazing. She only had eyes for me and she would have gone and healed to the end of the world for me, right? And I haven't <laughs> had a dog like that before or after. I could heal past another dog. When she was doing a behavior I had asked her to do, no problem. But the moment she was at liberty and left to her own devices and left to make her own choices, it just escalated. And then uh, at that point, I lived in Guatemala around free roaming dogs. Ah. So there were no more walks off leash and without a muzzle. Yeah. yeah. That starts to really limit you know, the experiences. Of and initially she was fine with that. And I built this entire giant dog run for her so I could separate her from the others. At that point, I had Mick and Game who got along fine. And Grits, I want to kill you, started expanding to Mick as well. So it wasn't just female, like, because then at some point I was like, maybe it's just female dogs, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm always like, always trying to find uh, excuses or ways to frame it. So it wasn't everyone. But at this point I was like, yeah, like she would have to be an only dog and I would have to live in a place like Austria where they're not free roaming dogs everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, not only did she want to kill both of my household dogs, she also wanted to kill any other dog she saw. And then there was this one time I drove somewhere where I was sure we would not meet any free roaming dogs. Mm. And I still had her on a long line for safety reasons, right. but I let her walk without a muzzle because at that point she was fine with the muzzle initially, but she was wearing it so much that she was getting neurotic about it. I was already seeing her world getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And she was, she was the one losing out because the other two dogs got along. So the other two dogs got more in the house time because there were two of them. And the other two dogs were afraid of her because they knew, they knew they couldn't oh, yeah. communicate in a way that would make, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see that. They know when another dog is yeah. dangerous to them and it's not yeah. fair to them, you know, and it's not a big yeah. part of my thought process is it's not fair to everybody else in the household to live yeah. with this constant worry, you know, of what might yeah. happen. But And I did not go anywhere without this dog. If I couldn't bring her, I didn't go because I didn't trust anyone with her. I didn't want anything to happen because, and when people saw me with this dog, this dog was perfect because I knew how to handle and manage her. Uh -huh. So like, you can't just hand over that dog to someone and, and like trust that they will actually follow your instruct. Like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. No. Because, not. Yeah. yeah. And it becomes a case of, it's just not realistic that you can dedicate your entire life to making sure that everybody else in the world is safe from this dog. It really isn't. Yeah. It's not fair to you. And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't think about that are in this situation, that it's really not fair to them as a human being yeah. to not have a full and complete and easy, happy life because everything revolves around trying to make sure nobody ever gets hurt with this dog. Yeah. And it, that, I don't yeah. think that's how we're we're meant to live or we're supposed to live with them. And like you said, they, you know, we keep shrinking their world. I think that's a really good way to put it. And how can they possibly be happy in life when everything keeps getting taken away from them? Yeah, they're alive, but that's not enough. Exactly. I mean, honestly. Yeah, and exactly. Like death is not necessarily the worst fate. Right for a dog. Right. That's something that I believe a lot of people might argue with us about. There are people who truly believe that life, no matter what, mm. no matter what situation. Um, and I'm not one of those people <laughs> at all. You know, the opposite. Not either. 
And I saw so many, I mean, you did so many things and, uh, you know, you did all the right things. And in mild set situations, those things probably would have made a significant difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you could have probably made a lot of people do those and it turns things around. But and I consulted like I also I do feel like because I consulted with my colleagues, right? I did not like I did trust trusted people with great story and the things that I was trying and going through. And that was really helpful for me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last, yeah. So that last thing, when I went without a muzzle to give her this one walk, because she was a dog who used to go off leash hiking, just right. like Hilo. And don't you know, it would turn around a corner and there's an off leash dog, a free ranging dog mm-hmm. who's not supposed to be there. Why were they there? Like, <laughs> yeah. Entering her leash radius and two seconds later, and that was a great Pyrenees sized fluffy white dog. Two seconds later, Grit had turned that dog on their back Jeez. and was attached to their throat. And I'm right there again. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I'm really good at choking her off and at knowing how mm-hmm. to do that. <laughs> That's not something you want to be good at. Yeah. The other dog scuffled away with a few drops of blood there, but I'm sure the dog was fine because I was really fast and they were very, very, they had a lot of fur, but um, that kind of was like the last straw in a way. And again, I I think I, yeah, I, I talked to colleagues. I was like, I feel like I need to do everything. I have not used an e-collar. I don't actually think that would make a difference, but yeah. I feel like I need to have tried everything in order to know. Yeah. So I did that too. I tried having her at Liberty wearing an e-collar at the highest setting. She went for game. I fried mm-hmm. that poor dog and that poor dog didn't even flinch. She didn't even feel it. That let me know. I mean, of course, wearing a muzzle and everything in place, but like that let me know I really needed to try everything that I could try in order to know that that decision was the right one. And I did. The only thing that I'm sad about is that I couldn't do it myself at home but that I had to take her to the vet because she did not like going to the vet. And I, like I was holding her and she fell asleep in my arms. Yeah. But I would have rather done that by myself in my own living room. (laughs) Yeah. But um, apart from that, I know it was the right decision because I know it was only a matter of time. Yes. All the fences I had put up, she could have jumped them. She just didn't know. You know? Yeah. And it's like people wait until something really awful happens before they make the decision. It's hard to make the decision before that, I think, before somebody else has died. If another dog's died, that's one thing. But if her life was so small at that point, it just made me so sad to look at her life. Yeah. I talked to you back then. I remember that. Yeah. I did not want another dog to die. And I felt like I knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. Right. And you did, you, you took your time. You tried all the things that you felt might help. Yeah. There's only so much in the world we can do with that. Yeah. And I think one of the things that with me, I didn't take a lot of time. I knew, I knew the moment I saw what he was doing. Yeah. There was like the bolt of lightning clarity. Oh my God. This, like you said, no emotion in the dog, but total. Yeah. Oh, I, I likened it to serial killer. I don't know what a serial killer actually looks like, but total intensity on doing this job yeah. and getting it done. 
and everything else in the world disappears. Like there is nothing else. There's just this. And I saw that and I just knew that there was no coming back from that, yeah. that there was no fixing that, that I was seeing something that I didn't want to see. I absolutely wish I didn't see it, but because I did, and because I've had so much experience with dogs for so many years, I knew this was not something that I could explain away in any way yeah. that I knew this was as serious as serious gets yeah. and that it was, it was not fixable yeah. and it was not manageable. And I knew that in a heartbeat yeah. and a lot of people faulted me for not trying things after the fact, but it's like, by then he'd killed one dog. I wasn't going to ever take the chance that he would kill another. And I saw what I saw. Yeah. I would stand by that, you know, over anything that what I saw and I, you know, wrestled him off the dog and he went back again. He got away from me, went back again, same thing, like he wasn't done yet. And it was not, you know, anything that I have, I would ever want anybody else to see. But if you see it, you know. Yeah. I saw it when that free ranging dog came into her the Right. And still something in me, I knew that for myself, I had to try everything and everything included a route that I would normally not go. Right. Because if I made this decision, I did not want to look back and feel like I haven't tried everything. And I mean, rehoming a dog like this is not an option. There is nobody in the world I would trust with this dog and nobody in the world I would want to go through that experience. Yes. Right. Yes. I'm not going to out Trish McMillan says outsourcing euthanasia. That was not an option. It was either I fix the problem in terms of I get her to somehow not do that anymore or want to do that anymore, or it is behavioral youth. There is no other option. Well, it's, yeah, I felt like this is totally my responsibility. This is my dog. This has been my dog since basically the day he was born. Even for her, that household, mm -hmm. you know, in the middle of nowhere with no other dogs, who's actually a dog trainer, has a securely fenced giant plot of land, does not exist. <laughs> yeah, none of that is reasonable. Yeah, none of that is realistic in any way. And again, the whole idea is just keep them alive. But, you know, I think solitary confinement is considered to be like the worst thing you can do to anybody way worse that's what it's leading to with these dogs that are that dangerous is that they're going to be in solitary confinement for the rest of their lives i don't think that's kinder no than a quick euthanasia you know a thoughtful yeah. euthanasia you mentioned i wanted to say real quickly while i'm thinking of it you mentioned trish mcmillan and i did want to mention to anybody that listens that she's one of the admins of a facebook group called losing lulu her and Sue Alexander that I was involved in helping develop in the beginning. And now it's way up there in over 10,000-ish, maybe even more members, all people who have gone through behavioral euthanasias with their dogs. And it's a really, really good resource for people who need a place to tell their story, a place where they feel safe, a place where they can get some support, and where they can get some understanding. Losing Lou is a great resource for people. Yeah. It is an amazing group. I'm in that group and just reading stories, reading other people's experiences, let me know that A, I'm not alone and B, I made the right choice.
Right. I think it really helps to see what other people have gone through. I think you and I might feel like we're in a slightly different situation being dog trainers, as opposed to most of people in that group that are owners. But then you get a lot of people from the shelter world where dogs have to be euthanized. And that's a whole different perspective as well, you know, when you start to look at that. So that's a a really, really good resource for people um, if they're looking to try to find a way to start dealing with their grief. I think talking about it and talking about it in a place where you know you won't be attacked. Yeah, where it's safe to do so. Right, yeah. Yeah, what is said in that group stays in that group. Exactly. Yeah, they're very careful. I feel so lucky to have friends and colleagues that I could talk to about this, even when I wasn't ready to talk about it publicly. Right. Because I needed to talk about it. Yeah. And I did from the beginning, I wanted to talk about it publicly, but I knew that I wasn't ready at that point. And I'm ready now because actually partly because of your book. And also there is one prompt in your book that was, wait, let me see if I find it. I marked a few. Ah, yeah, this. What has been the hardest stretch of your time so far? What did you do to try and cope? And the hardest stretch of time, which is so interesting. And I realized that when I read this question, that was only recently Mm. because Brit was an incredibly sensitive dog and really in tune with my emotions in some way. Wow. She would... When I was sad, she would come find me and she would lick my tears off my face. I know many dogs do that, but I hadn't had another dog who did that before. Yes. And I was having a a hard time and I was crying a lot. And the dog by my side was Game, not Grit. And Game also is a Malinois. And Game is not that kind of dog. Game is a very different dog. She's very different. Same breed, completely different personalities. Game is amazing, but game is not grit. And in these situations where I was so sad, mm. I really missed grit. I missed her so much. I missed that dog who would come find me to be there with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see, I can get that. I understand that. No matter what happened that led to their death, they had so many good qualities and we depended on them. Yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way with Hila. I had a really, I felt like I had a really close relationship with him. Yeah. And in fact, after my son died, Hila was like my next relationship that I, and I spent every day with him. And so to go, okay, you know, that was sort of some sort of a, a bridge, but it made me feel better. He gave me focus because we would hike all the time. And so it gave me a focus for most of my days that, you know, we had our plan for what we were going to do that day. And I think, yeah, then we've lost our routine. We've lost our support system, you know, with a lot of these dogs. I hear the stories over and over of people that, you know, they were really, really close to this particular dog. And yet we still can't save them we still can't save them from themselves basically and from whatever it is that's going on with them yeah and I think and in the end I do feel like I did save grit from a life in solitary confinement right I know we can't ask them so we can never know what they would say (laughs) I'm just projecting my own personality of course on my dogs but I know that for myself solitary confinement would be so much worse than death That's me. And that's why I made that choice. Right. And someone else may have a different answer to that question. So they will make a different choice, which is valid. 
uh, I think when we make a decision like this with truly the best interest of the dogs at heart, and it's not like I made this decision because my life would be easier or because I didn't want to deal with the problem or whatever it might be, but truly because I've weighed all the options for this animal. And this is the only decent outcome that's left. This is the only thing that's going to give them peace. We can't give them peace when they're alive. The only thing we can do is to give them peace when they're gone. Yeah. And it's a terrible decision to have to make. I don't know that anybody takes it lightly. How could you? And if a person does take it lightly, I don't want to know that person. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be around them because they, they're definitely not a good human being. Yeah. But it's not taken like, oh, I just don't feel like dealing with it anymore. No. It's too much of a hassle. We do. People change their lives in so many ways to try to make it work. Yeah. And sometimes people wait too long. I think that that is a real danger that you wait too long until, you know, really awful things have happened. How how often do we hear about dogs that kill humans? You know, that happened. Yeah. And, you know, people knew that that was going to happen. They know that the way it's going. There's lots of signs that it's going to happen. And yet it still does happen because people can't bring themselves to euthanize dogs. So I don't know that we can always say, you know, that euthanization is the worst possible thing. No. Yeah, it's the loss of their life here with us. But I don't know if it's the worst outcome for them. I think that there can be worse outcomes for them, for everybody around them. I agree. You know, nobody wants to do it. Yeah. Nobody wants to talk about it. And that just makes your grief over it all so much more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what the, what you were just saying about, it's not that we want our lives to be easier, et cetera. I didn't even realize that my life was hard. Like, I was so involved yeah. with this dog and keeping everyone safe and making sure to meet her needs as well as possible. I did not realize my life was hard. Mm-hmm. And this is my one guilt is that after putting her down, there was also, apart from all the grief, there was also this feeling of relief. Yeah. Because all of a sudden Common. I could travel. I could go places where I could not bring her. Mm. And I hadn't even realized that I couldn't do that before. I just, I hadn't realized because I was so, like, I was so focused on this dog and making sure I hadn't even realized my life was relatively small as well, along with Grit's life, because I was so focused on her and on keeping everyone around her safe and on kind of meeting her needs and making sure the other household dogs didn't have to be too close to her to feel afraid. Only once she was gone, did I realize, oh, (laughs) there's this whole other life out there that I just kind of put on. Right. And there was a little bit of relief in there. And that is what I feel guilty about. The feeling of relief. Yeah. But that's so common. I think people just don't talk about it or realize it. But when you're living with somebody the same seems to be true. Like my son was very, very sick for about a year or so before he died and he needed a lot of care. And I think that you get that same feeling of relief. You don't realize that it's going to happen at yeah. first. It takes a while to to go, oh, well, I don't have to do all these things anymore. Yeah. You know, that I don't have to be constantly worried about this other person or animal and that I can do other things in life. I can do things I want to do. I don't have to put somebody else's needs first. Yeah. And I think sometimes we just do it. You just put your head down and you do what you need to do and you don't think about it till later. 
because you love that you love that person or that dog so much you with all your heart right you don't yeah. mind doing it it's like no it's yeah. not like it's even a, a hard thing to do not even a question you just of course you do it because that's what's needed right exactly that's what's necessary and that's what we do um but i've heard i've heard people say over and over again they feel guilty about feeling better yeah and i I think sometimes we can manage as humans to feel guilty about everything, <laughs> that anything that happens, we can find a way to make any time th something good happens to us, we can find a way to make ourselves feel. Oh, yes. We're so good at that. Yeah. And I and I think there's nothing wrong with that relief. We deserve, you know, people deserve that. Yeah. You know, you're not meant to, to ignore your own needs forever. Yeah. We can do it short term. You know, we can do it when we have to as much as we have to. But you know, then then we can move on with life and other things happen and we can let that go at some point. But yeah, that guilt, I think, lasts for a long time. Yeah. Also, I didn't see it coming. I did not see that relief coming. Yeah. I just saw the grief coming. Right. And with the grief, I knew that I was making the right choice. Mm -hmm. So I was at peace with that decision. Right. Yeah. It's like, Grief isn't what we think it's going to be. <laughs> it's, I don't know. It was very different with every loss I've had. It's been surprising. Even when I think, oh, I've been through this enough. I ought to know now, you know, I ought to be able to predict what it's like. It's still not, not. And I think guilt is one, you know, we have a lot of negative emotions swirling around after loss and guilt is one of them them. Sadness, of course, we expect because you're supposed to be sad. Um, the other one is anger. And I think that people are surprised when they're angry, either at themselves or even at the animal or just at the life in general or at the vet or at the trainer. You know, you're angry that somebody couldn't fix this or solve this or make it be different. Yeah. And I think that's one of those emotions we're not expecting. I felt that more with my after my son died, the anger for a long, long time. But anger tends to just cover up sadness. And eventually, yeah. anger takes a lot of energy. And eventually, you run out of energy. But I think sometimes people in loss have those and, and are surprised by them. And to see any sort of positive emotion come out of it, like relief, I think is very surprising to people. And then we go, well, that, we can't feel better about anything. Yeah, I should feel terrible. I deserve to feel terrible is probably often what people are thinking that I don't deserve anything good to come out of this now. Yeah. You don't, you're like, I'm not allowed to feel better about this. You know, yeah. like I say, that's, it's a tough thing all the way around. Yeah. And I still remember so clearly yeah. the day after it happened with Hilo and Quest, me saying, I don't think anything good can ever come out of a situation like this. I really, really believe that at the time. I thought only bad things will come out of this. And, you know, it's almost hard to say good things came out of Hilo's death. That's like, that sounds horrible to me to say it even now. But I think some good things did. I made connections with people that were in similar situations. Other people started talking to me about when these things happened to them because they remembered that they happened to me. Some good did come out of it eventually, but I wouldn't say I want it to happen so that <laughs> there can be good outcomes. I certainly don't want don't want that to happen to anybody, but sadly it will. Yeah, it will. It will keep happening. And I do think you having been public about it did change a bit of the conversation in the 
dog training circles we travel in. Yeah, I think in our little part of the world. Just a little bit, you know, even if it's just a little bit. Right, right. Yeah. I think that the openness to start going, you know, no matter what I do or how I train this animal, bad things can still happen. And no matter how good a trainer you are, because you are an amazing trainer and I admire you on so many levels. That's very kind. Bad things will still happen. Right. And still happen. And sometimes there really is nothing you can do about it. Right. It's no fault. We wish it was. We wish there was some blame or someone to blame. <laughs> but sometimes it's not. Right. Yes. Again, a, a human psychology thing. We love to assign blame. Because if I can blame somebody and make it their fault, I can make sure that it's it never happens to me. It somehow actually makes us feel like we can protect ourselves. Yeah. If somebody can look at me and say, you know, the reason this happened to you is because you did this. Yeah. Then that won't happen to me because I wouldn't act like that. So they can feel safe, but you're not safe. (laughs) You're really not. No, you know, because no matter you never are. No, but we like to, we love that illusion. I might step out into the street and get run over by a bus in five minutes, you know, (laughs) never safe. Yeah. And that's the thing nobody ever wants to really admit. It's all an illusion in terms of safety and security in life and what may or may not happen going forward. I mean, I'm the biggest control freak in the world. I want to control all the things that happen to me. And I I think you mentioned it earlier, dog trainers in general tend to like our control. Yeah, Animal trainers, we can control other creatures. That's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. I feel like that gives me an outlet to not have to control the humans in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because humans are much more complicated than animals. Yeah. Give me any animal any day. I know I can change them. But if you give me a human, I just throw up my hands and walk away because I'm like people, you know, people, they're tough. They're complicated. It's like, that's what you got out of all your higher education in psychology. People are complicated and difficult to change, but it's very true. I mean, I just have to look at myself. (laughs) And I know that people are complicated. <laughs> True. I don't have to look very far. Yeah, but it's just the bathroom. <laughs> most of us are not, you know, very introspective. We tend to look outward rather than in because we are, yeah, we are probably as big of a mystery to ourselves <laughs> as other people are to us. It's like sometimes I have no idea why I do what I do. Yeah. You know, we make up stories about it later. And then we make up stories about other people and why they are doing what they're doing. Right. That, but if we don't even know why we are doing what we're doing, like, how could we know about other? This all kind of circles back to exactly why I got into psychology, because I think it's all fascinating. A lot of it is unknowable, but we have all kinds of cool theories <laughs> and they may or may not actually turn out to be true. But yeah, we have all kinds of theories about why people are the way they are. And we have those narratives that we come up with about them. But we have to also be open to the fact that we could just be very, very wrong. Yeah. And I think that's hard for people to admit. I will freely admit that I'm wrong about things. And I will freely admit that I've been wrong in the past and I've learned something that has changed me. Yeah. You know, and I think that sometimes people just get really stuck in their perspective and they don't learn anything new. So they can't ever be wrong. And then you're in a bad place all the way around. And I think sometimes when you're trying to protect yourself too much, you don't want to learn anything that goes against what you think you already know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I just found found a dog cookie on the side of my sofa. Never mind. Okay. I feel like we've talked a lot, but I don't even know how much we've skimmed the surface of some of these things. 
Yeah, there's so much. It's a tough topic to talk about grief in general, and people don't want to talk about it because it brings up all those unpleasant emotions that we'd rather pretend not to have, or we'd rather minimize as much as we possibly can. You know, so the idea is if I just don't think about it, or I don't talk about it, it won't be a problem. But we also know that a lot's going on anyway. It's happening under the surface and it's coming out in a number of ways. It is going to come out sooner or later. Yeah. yeah. Usually in some very unexpected, unpleasant way. Um, so we're better off if we work through it as best we can, you know, and sometimes we can't. I mean, sometimes you just don't have the bandwidth yeah. to work through like writing through some prompts and thinking about your grief. Sometimes it's like, no, I just need to watch like a Hallmark movie and eat some cookies. Yeah. And, and that's perfectly valid too. I wouldn't do it every day for months, Yeah, but I just, you know, you do what will help you cope short term Yeah, as well as what's good for you long-term. And we try to um, balance those out. So, you know, I try to get through every day being relatively okay so that you can function, yet you still sometimes need to go back and deal with feelings that are very, very uncomfortable to open up and deal with and, you know, work through experiences that are very unpleasant. And we still have to do that at some point. And that's part of the book, I think. I wanted to make that a little easier to do. Yeah. Put it into small bits so you could do one little thing at a time yeah. and not have to, like, try to face overwhelming grief all at once but break it down like dog training break it down into little pieces I could not stop writing when I was working through the book it was it was really the right moment for me to have that book excellent that's good yeah it's like yeah I don't want anybody to need it but yeah there will be a time when when it's probably right for you yeah. and it might not be right after a loss at all because that might just be way too soon and way too yeah. uncomfortable and and emotions are kind of overwhelming the ability to even think through a lot of the prompts and ideas. But I think there does come a time when it's helpful. It can be helpful to work through. At least that's what I hope. Yeah. So I hope people hear about the book. You know, I hope it gets out. It also brought up so many good memories that I hadn't thought about in a while. Which is so nice. Oh, that's good. So many beautiful things that made me smile as I was thinking about them. And that's this balance. Grief is just one side of love. Right, exactly. And I like that a lot because I hate the idea that all I'm doing is encouraging people to feel yeah. badly you know, or to bring up all the unpleasant things that they're feeling. Because, yeah, it's like there should be a lot of good in there, too. And there is. Typically, as time goes on, it gets a little easier to remember the good things or to see them in that light that's not so uncomfortable, yeah. um, but it, it can't take time. That's you know, the other thing I've learned from my in my life, I think, is that nothing stays the same. Things will change. If you just keep living, things will be different. Yeah. And then sometimes they can be massively different. Five years can make a huge difference in a lifetime, but you just have to keep going even when you don't want to. Yeah. Lots of times day to day, you don't want to. Yeah. But if you do, then you have the possibility that things will get much, much better. Yeah. And that, you know, that, and I feel lucky that I've lived long enough to, to see that in my own life because I don't, you know, I know a lot of people that don't Yeah, actually kind of get to the point where their lives get better. I always feel badly about that. Like they didn't get the full experience of that somehow. But yeah, so timing matters when we deal with these things as well. Um, so the grief will still be there. 
in two years. It will always be there, but it will be right. It will be by your side in. Like, you mm -hmm. know, It'll be different. Terrible in a way that also right. makes you grateful for having had that being in your life. Yes, even with all the pain. Even with all the pain, because they were worse. I would. Would you? Right. Would you? Would you want to go? Would you go through it again? You know, a lot of us want to say no because it's too painful. But on the other hand, when you remember all the good, it's like, well, yeah, I, I would hate to have missed out on all those experiences. Yes. Yeah. In three years that I had with him. I don't want to go through it a second time, <laughs> but I wouldn't change that first time for anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that can be that yeah. can seem like an odd thing to say, but I think it's it, it makes a lot of sense to me, at least mm -hmm. being in the same kind of situation that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that that he was with me for his life. You know, I'm glad that I had him for that part for his life. Yeah. As much of it as there was. I wish there was more. I wish certain things didn't happen, but you know, they did. So we're the ones left to figure it out and to move on with it. And we have a hard job. It's not easy. It's not easy. But also I feel like I want to say that, even if it's currently really, really horrible somewhere down the road there will be a day where you're gonna laugh again and have a beautiful day yes exactly even when that's completely unimaginable <laughs> and that beautiful day is not gonna take away the companionship of your grief right and some people all again feel guilty because they're happy or because they have a good day or because you can often feel like you're getting further and further away from them Yeah. the longer time goes on and then you feel bad about that. It's like the grief isn't as strong as it used to be. So now I feel bad because I'm not grieving enough. <laughs> we can, again, find all kinds of ways to make ourselves feel badly, but yeah. there's still good in life to be had and people can find it yeah. again, even after going through something that's so horrific that you think it's going to break you. You think that it's just going to ruin you for life. It it won't. Yeah. You know, there are ways to keep going beyond it. And I hope people know that. I feel lucky because I've had lots of opportunities to find ways to cope. And I have access to resources yeah. that allow me to do what I need to do to help myself. I could do, you know, I picked up after my, my son died at the first Christmas and I flew across the country to San Diego to go on vacation all by myself. Yeah. You know, people don't have those resources or that ability. It was what for me, it felt like exactly the thing I needed to do at that moment in time. Um, but I realized there's a lot of privilege in that. Yeah. You know, I can't say, oh, you should take a vacation. People don't have that option sometimes. So I realized that through the grief that I've had in various ways, I've still been very privileged in how I've been able to deal with it and to cope with it. And the fact that I could be selfish in my grief yeah. and worry only about me, as opposed to maybe if I had a partner or kids that also went through something that I would have to help them deal with. So, you know, there's everybody has their different situations. Yeah. So that's why I feel like I can't give advice necessarily, but we can talk about our experiences and say, these are the kinds of things in general that can help. Um, every situation, you know, people can have to adapt things that'll work for them in their lives. And sometimes that's easier than others. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's experience is unique, I think. Right, right. It's though I do think we love to see the commonalities. I mean, it makes me feel better. Yeah. And it's helpful to 
see them because it makes you feel less alone. Right. Like I'm not so strange. You know, I'm not the outlier who is really weird in all of this. When I hear somebody else say, oh, yeah, I had that exact same feeling or thought or experience. It's like, oh, yeah, that definitely makes me, yeah. makes me feel better. It makes you feel like, OK, that is true. And I think that's why, you know, support groups like Losing Lulu um, are helpful because you'll find people on there who've gone through the same kind of thing. Yeah, totally. You know, I did a similar thing when my son died and I ended up in a human grief group. I actually made friends there that I still have now because we went through such similar experiences at the same point in time. Um, so it, it just helps to know that you can find other people who feel the same. And then, you know, you work through things at your own pace. Um, yeah. If it takes 10 years, it takes you 10 years. It, you know, whatever <laughs> you got. Yeah. Everyone is on their own time scale too. And there's no comparing. There's no point in comparing. Right. Yeah. Comparison. Yeah. Comparative suffering, the worst. It is. Um, I've actually heard people who, yeah, especially with animals. Well, at least you didn't lose a child. Well, at least it wasn't a person kind of thing. And it's like that really tries to minimize yeah. the depth of grief that a person is experiencing. I think that's a terrible thing to do to somebody. Yeah, They might say it from their perspective, it's better. But, you know, you're not really being empathetic to the person and to how they're experiencing their grief. And so, yeah, um, or to say, well, because your dog was old, it was easier for you than when my dog was young. Uh, you know, there, no. there's there's pain all the way around. There's enough pain for everybody. Yeah, there's enough suffering yeah. around. Mine doesn't have to be more than yours to make it valid. It. Yeah, it really does not. So I think that, yeah, that idea that we can somehow compare griefs and that some griefs are worse than others. Um, no, they're just all different. Right, right. That doesn't rank them in any grief competition. Exactly. <laughs> There's like a hierarchy, yeah. you know, of grief. And the other thing I'd say is a lot of what we know about grief, at least in psychology, what we talk about in grief, doesn't really hold up in real life. The idea that there are stages that you go through and that you'll eventually come to the end of the stages and I guess then you're better. That doesn't seem to be true at all. We can actually, the idea of stages, we can be in all of them at the same time yeah. because they're basically just different emotions, you know, denial, depression, anxiety, you know, anger. I can have those on any given day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's not like I'm going to work through one feeling and now I'll work through the next feeling and now I'll work through the next. I wish that's how it worked. That would be nice because then you can check them off the list and you know, you're almost done. Right. I love that. I love a checklist. I could do grief like that. It's like, okay, I've had my six months here in depression. Yeah. It's time to move on to anger now. Let's bring on the next stage. <laughs> right. Exactly. That would actually make it to me uh, more doable. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because you have this map in front of you, you know exactly where you're going, you know how much time it's going to take, and then you'll be all good. But that's not how it works. Yeah, that's not how it works at all. Yeah, no. Right. Yeah, we can only wish that that was how life worked. But and that was how grief worked. But it's not. But I think that then people get this impression that that's what it is, kind of this vague idea that somebody who's grieving will work through their stages, and then they'll be better in six months or a year, and everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. People don't at all acknowledge how confusing it is, how complicated it is, how long lasting it can be. They've just started diagnosing something they call complex grief, 
But I think all grief is complex grief. I, I find it hard to find a grief that's not complex in some way or the other. I've read that somewhere, but I don't remember. Uh, is complex grief grief that goes on longer? Yeah, longer. And again, it's kind of like, um, you know, more more emotions involved. Maybe there's um, some aspect of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder involved, but that is also true in lots and lots of grief. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of feel like even from what I had, you know, with my son, I uh, going to a, into a hospital was very traumatic for a long time after, you know, he died. So um, did I have PTSD too? Maybe I had some aspect of it. You know, this is where we get into trouble labeling things. <laughs> yeah. Do we have to label? Like, I sometimes wonder, does it? Doesn't matter. I guess maybe sometimes it's helpful to label things. Yeah, the idea that if we understood it, if we could have a model for it, but I think especially in terms of grief, psychology is way behind and understanding. And even the counselors I've talked to, they're really not that up to date on anything new. It's kind of this old model and we follow it along and, you know, eventually the person will come out of it and they'll be better. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that I think is important to know is that you're never going to go back to the person you were before this thing happened to you because that person is also gone. Yeah. As much as the animal is gone that you love, you are not the person you were with that dog. Yeah. I'm not the person I was when Zen was with me by a long shot. I'm a very different person now. So I can't possibly go back and be who I was before. There's there's no way that's going to happen. And I think a lot of times people think that what you expect at the end of grief is you're the go back to that person. No, you're someone else. Right. You have to make a whole new person. Yeah. And that's not easy. It's like now I have to develop a new me going forward. Yeah. And that takes a lot of effort. And it's exhausting a lot of the times. So people don't realize that, that I'm not going to be the person I used to be after any loss. I'm going to be the new person that builds from that loss yeah. and tries to move ahead. And sometimes it's a better person. Sometimes it's maybe it's not a better person, but it's certainly not like, oh, you know, if, if somebody ever says, well, you're not like you used to be, you're different now. It's, well, yeah. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah, I think that's sometimes people still have that expectation that they will be like before and that that's gone, that door closed and it will never open again. So that's that's hard, I think, to understand. And it's a lot of the work that we do in grief after we've lost someone, I think, is trying to just be a person. Yeah. And who am I now that I do not share my life in this way with this animal or with this person? You're someone else. And you have to get to know that person. And figure out how I can be a functioning person, I guess, more than anything. Yeah. Or you have to become that person. Right. Yeah. When you've lost somebody. Yeah. Yeah, Because we didn't choose that I'm going to change now. I want to change now. Exactly. It happened. And you might not even want to. Yeah. It's like out of our control to some extent. And we're usually kicking and screaming because we don't want to be different yeah and now life is forcing me to do all this unpleasant stuff I don't want to do and to work hard to just get by day to day and to figure out how I'm going to go on in the world and yeah it's no wonder that grieving people have so many issues just getting through each day and moving on continuing to move on with life 
as best you can, but we're different. I think fundamentally, yeah. if you work through grief at all, you become a very different person each time you have a loss. There's no way that you cannot, you know, unless you just get stuck and I guess, you know, and I, I feel like sometimes you see people who you feel like are very stuck. Yeah. They didn't want their life to change so much. They didn't want the loss so much that they're just not going to move forward beyond. And I feel, you know, that's, I don't think that's healthy for the rest of your life. I don't think, think so either, but also maybe it depends on who you are. Right. It's like sometimes, yeah, trying to, you know, live in the past or hold on to a past that's no longer there. That's, that's a hard that's going to be painful and unpleasant too. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't avoid the discomfort in some ways. It's going to I remember a time when I thought, when I really believed that it was possible to go through the world without hurting people and without getting hurt. <laughs> and that I just hadn't figured it out. No. And now, by now, I know that it's not possible. You are going to hurt people and you are going to get hurt and there will be grief and there will be loss. Right. Our life expectancy as humans is just way too high for there to not be. Right. right. Especially, you know, we have to know with dogs, for goodness sake. Yeah. I've, I've outlived a lot of dogs in my lifetime, you know, and we know this, but yet we are very good at ignoring it from day to day and having this idea that the way we are right now, when things are going good, that's how it's going to be forever. I'm at the stage of life where I'm counting all the time. And it's like, okay, so if I get a dog now, and that dog lives for 15 years, <laughs> you know, how old am I going to be by then? And is that a realistic thing for me to still take care of this animal when I'm this age, you know, or how old am I going to be when Star's gone? And of course, we can't predict something could happen tomorrow. But, you know, this idea that we can somehow just ignore the fact that probably if you live with dogs a lot, a good portion of them are going to die well before you do. Yeah. And we have to deal with that in some way or the other. And then find ways to move on from that. And I do think that for those of us that spend a lot of time working with our dogs and, and live with our dogs very intensely, that it can be even harder. It feels like a, a loss of a partnership more than like the loss of a pet. Yeah. I don't want to minimize pet, but there's, you know, what we do when we work with our dogs and we train them so much and, and we're with them pretty much 24 seven. Yeah. They're part of our job. We spend so much time with them. If you have a different job and different hobbies, they're just way less involved in your life. Right. Yeah. It's like having a spouse that you also work with. So you're constantly with them all the time. And that's how we are. Yeah. Many of us that are professional dog trainers, that's how we are with them. So that, you know, loss is hard on a professional level as well as on a personal level. You know, so I think that there's a whole other part to dealing with that. You know, the idea to me of losing, you know, I put three years into training an animal that I expected would work with me for another 10 years, not just live with me, but actually work with me and be part of a lot of what I did in my work. And to find that's just gone in a moment. It's like, oh, that's the thought of starting over again with a different partner, it's really, really hard. And it took me a long time to get another dog. It took me a long, long time to get another dog after Kilo. I didn't get, well, two years ago. So it's, it's five, six years. Yeah. I had to really 
so other people would get other dogs very quickly and I don't have any problem. You know, I don't say that's the wrong thing either, but I was certainly not ready to start again. <laughs> you know, I had to try again. No, everyone griefs in their own way. And But luckily I also already still had two wonderful dogs that were great to work with for many, many years. It wasn't like he was the only working dog I had. And, and then if I was gonna, you know, if I was going to continue my career, I needed to get another dog started. Yeah. But I took the time and I'm glad I did. It took me a long time, but I think that was the best way. Yeah. Chai, my foster puppy, is the first new dog I've let into my life since Grit died. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to open up to that because I think, again, a little bit of PTSD going on. I'm kind of a little just shy about getting myself in a situation where, you know, anytime I'd see a behavior that I wasn't certain about, you know, or an interaction between the dogs that made me even slightly notice. It's like, oh, is this going to happen again? Is something terrible going to happen now? So I, I need a long time to get over that fear that I might see the same thing happen again with a new dog that I would bring in. That is so interesting because I feel like because I live in this country of free roaming dogs. Mm. I am so I am ready to let game off because game like against all odds growing up with a dog who wanted to kill her is incredibly socially savvy. Uh And even if there's a scruffle between two dogs, I can usually tell immediately that this is nothing. That is definitely something I have learned. I know I see if two dogs get into a fight, I know, I know what kind of understanding that is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a serious fight or if it's just a, yeah, an argument kind of thing. Yeah. I'm the same way. I always felt like I had a good read on those kind of things. And you see something that's a serious, I'm going to kill you thing. And very few dogs are like that. And things that other people are like, oh my God, what is happening? I'm like, "Mm, it's going to be okay. (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. And it's usually, at least I always said the noise, they're, they are, they're just yelling at each other kind of thing. It's usually loud and nobody draws blood and everyone goes their own way. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I always felt like I had a good feel for that. And so it threw me professionally to go, did I miss all kinds of signs that this was going to happen? And I didn't have, like you did, you had a lot of buildup and warning. and I felt blindsided by it you know I can look back now and go oh well there was that moment when he stared at him and I was like hey yeah yeah but there were no obvious signs there were no fights I mean there there were the the, the usual little you know get out of my space or I would like that bone that you have scuffled but nothing that ever scared me exactly yeah if there had been I certainly wouldn't have walked out of the house and left them loose alone you know that would never have occurred to me to do because you see minor scuffles in any multi-dog household right and people who say they don't I don't they're not paying attention because they do happen and you know and usually the dogs get very good at handling their personal interactions and there's no big deal going on or something known like okay this dog resource guards the bones so we'll be careful about that and then it's never a problem yeah or it's rarely a problem or you know with enough training i say come here get away from that leave that be fine you know they will they're like okay i'd like it but i won't it's not worth fighting anybody over it yeah, yeah. so to have something so massive happen like under my nose out of the blue 
Mm-hmm. That throws me. And it's like, am I really off? Should I not be a dog trainer? Yeah. I really seriously considered leaving, you know, the field altogether because I'm like, but it's it's part of who I am. And it's like, no, really? you know, once I had some time to get over and think, I was like, no, I know what I'm doing. It is, it was one of those things that really couldn't be predicted or avoided much as people would like to believe that it can be. And yeah, it took me a while to get my confidence back though, for sure. And to feel like I could be a good dog trainer, even though I think at some level, logically is one thing, but emotionally it's like you know another thing altogether so that took some doing that took a little while and I think that's often why professional dog trainers don't talk about these kinds of things often because it it could really impact your career pretty seriously if I had been earlier in my career or not so confident in my abilities you know that could have it could have had a whole different outcome to it yeah and I could have left the field easily, probably, yeah. you know, at that point. I'm really glad you did not leave the field. Well, thank you. I'm glad I didn't either, because it's it's what I do. I enjoy it so much. I always like coming up with new ideas and, and doing new things. So I'd hate to have left it as well. And I think part of me, I always knew I wouldn't really leave it because I don't know what else I would do at this point in my life. I don't want to learn a new hobby or a new occupation now. It's like, nah, I'm stuck with this. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Oh my gosh, I can't believe how long we've talked here. <laughs> Zoom is going to kick us out again, but maybe we, well, if it does kick us out again, we'll just hop on again. But if people want to take a look, at When the Loss is Deep, a Companion Animal Grief Journal, where can they find it? And if they want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Okay. Um, the book is available on Amazon. And that's really the only place I have it available now because that's the easiest and cheapest way. So you can just Google When the Loss is Deep, Deborah Jones, and that should come up for you. If you want to contact me or learn more about me, everything I do pretty much now is online through Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. So if you go to Fenzy Dog Sports Academy website, you can look up my bio as an instructor and it'll tell you a little bit about me. It'll give you an email and I have a website k9infocus.com and it'll also lead you there from the Fenzy website as well. So you can find me there. I'm on Facebook a lot. I have a big group that works on cooperative care for grooming and veterinary training, husbandry. You can find me there as well. So I'm around in cyberspace all the time (laughs) doing a lot of dog-like things. Nice. That's me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I enjoyed it. It was really, it was good to talk to you and on a deeper level. This is the moment Zoom cut us off again. I'm on the free version, and it only gives you 40 minutes at a time. Deb and I decided not to hop on yet another time, because we'd have talked another 40 minutes more. And it's not like 40 more minutes would have brought us much closer to saying everything we have to say about grief. So I'll leave you here with this. Thank you, Deb Jones, for your time, for your latest book, and for being you in this complex and difficult life of ours. Check the show notes for links to the Companion Animal Grief Journal and Deb's contact info. And hug your dogs for me if they don't mind being hugged, that is.